Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and a beautiful WIP day it promises to be going up into the 80s, so it's a good day to be out and about. Maybe start thinking about your vacation if you're not already there. But no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation here. When we come back in just a bit, one from the archives, we begin the day with conversation from there and then. Always good conversation is timeless here on 94 WIP. The WIP time, 602. And we're back, and the conversation begins. This is I welcome Glenn Hamilton, author of a new book, Something Great to Pack, Pack, for that vacation read on the beach in the mountains or if you're just staying at home. Let me say good morning to Glenn Hamilton. Good morning, sir. Hi. Good morning, Peter. Okay. How do you describe what you write? Uh, I'd, I'd probably kind of describe it as more, more accurately um, a mystery thriller. Um, there's aspects of mysteries that I really enjoy. I enjoy whodunits. I enjoy clues. I enjoy, uh, as a reader, I like trying to figure things out as I, as I encounter them. But I really like the action scenes of thrillers, um, and I like to mix the genres as much as I can and, and try to uh, create kind of a smorgasbord of taking the, the best parts of books that I love to read and putting them together. Who do you like to read? Um, I love everything from uh, Lee Child, um, Harlan Coben, certainly. Um, uh, Robert B. Parker was a major influence. But I really like to mix it up. And um, of late, I've been reading authors like Elizabeth Little, um, Ruth Ware, uh, Chelsea Kane. Um, a lot of the, um, uh, the authors that have broken out really in the last 10 years and are kind of dominating the field now, like uh, like Megan Abbott and Reed Farrell Coleman. All right, let's move on to your new novel, Every Day Above Ground, a Van Shaw novel. Who is Van Shaw? Van is a man who was uh, raised in unusual circumstance. He was raised by his grandfather. He's orphaned at an early age, and his grandfather um, is an Irish immigrant to the west coast of the U.S., uh, primarily in Seattle and raised Van um, to do what he does professionally. And what he is is a career criminal. He was a robber in his younger and wilder days and and has uh, matured, if you want to call it that, into a life as a professional thief and burglar. And Van grows up in this this world with a a rather skewed moral compass. And very soon, um, as he he ages into into his late teenage years, finds that he's coming into conflict with those with that moral standpoint and he he and his grandfather Dono um, they are he is named for Dono they're they're they both share the name of Donovan Van uh, and Dono have a violent falling out in his uh, around his high school graduation time and then escapes into um, the recourse for a lot of young people who have no a lot of uh, perhaps a lot of intelligence a lot of drive but not a lot of resources then goes into the military. 
and he served with distinction in Iraq and Afghanistan for 10 years when the first book in the series begins. And at that point, Dono asks him, uh, after having no contact between the two men, to come home. And if there's, a, if there's an arc to the series, it's Van reconciling his, um, his upbringing with the morals that he learned later in, in the Army and really trying to find the gray areas where he's most comfortable living. Well, it's interesting because I hear a couple of novels hiding in there just from the little bit we've said. I hear a novel about the conflict of generations, a novel about teenage rebellion. Yes, certainly. It's, it's, um, there are flashbacks in all of the novels, um, starting with the first one, that talk about or, or show Van and Donna's relationship at various ages. Um, in the first book, that skips around a little. We see him at ages 9, 11, 14, and so forth. And the way that their relationship progressed and, and a bit of that story of teenage rebellion, as you said. And in later books, it zeroes in more on, on the, in the second and third books, more on uh, different events that happened in his life, formative events that would have happened in his uh, teenage and slightly younger than teenage years. And that gives us a chance to, I think, tell a richer backstory without necessarily interrupting the flow of the, of the larger action. And this is novel number four in the series? This is, this is novel number three. I'm working on novel number four now. Um, the first first novel, which came out in 2015, was Past Crimes. Uh, the second was Hard Cold Winter. And then the new one, as you said, is Every Day Above Ground, which comes out next month. Exciting, to say the least. Now, I'm not going to ask, because that would be give too much away. Do the generations <laughs> reconcile? I'll ask anyway. Uh, they, they, um, uh, there is a reconciliation. Um, it, uh, it doesn't always get the chance to happen face to face. Um, but there is certainly a piece that comes between the two men that is related to Donna's reasons for asking his grandson to return. Now, if I was a Hollywood producer, I'd say, does grandpa want Donovan to do one more job? <laughs> um, no, he doesn't want Van to do one more job. In fact, I think part of the reconciliation between the two of them is Van's realizing that Dono does not expect him, or Dono actually accepts the different path that Van has chosen for his life. Hmm. So where's the tension? Because every good novel like this one should have a tension going on. Ah, well, part of the tension is Van in the in the very start of the first novel, um, and I'm not revealing too much because you can read this on the on the flap of the book. Is when Van returns home, um, he finds Dono shot and bleeding out um, in the on the floor of their family home. Um, this is not a coincidence that Dono is shot on the very day that that Van returns, and so the the main thrust of the mystery in the first book is Van. Uh, investigating Dono's recent activity and, in fact, what he's been up to in the years since Van has left and trying to determine what, um, what, what Dono's intentions were in asking Van to come home, why, why, in, fact, uh, why in fact Dono has, has asked him at this particular time in his life and what's happened in Dono's life recently to make him, uh, make him reach out after all this time.
And it's got to be hard for the old man to reach out. It's very hard for him to reach out. The two men are, in addition to having a lot of pride, um, which is probably what caused the, the, the initial break, even after they've cooled off and time has passed and Van has established this new life for himself, a large part of it uh, spent overseas, is the um, is, is, is coming to understanding. Because even after you've gotten over your pride and perhaps you want to reach out, there's a deeper understanding and growth that has to happen on both their times. What links the two men, of course, is the woman they both lost, and that is Van's mother and Donna's daughter, who died when Van was six, um, and that's when he came to live with Donna. And there's a fundamental loss in both their lives there that affects them both very deeply, that in, on- in all honesty, they've never, they've, they never had the chance to talk about. Um, and, and so uh, there's some of that in the first book, um, but there's more as Van continues to progress as a character during the, during the, the coming books and discovering some of his family history and what he thinks of as family. There's a strong theme of family running through the books, and uh, a large part of that family is not who you were born into, but who you choose. And that's an important point to make. We get two families in life, that one which we're born into and that one which we can choose, and they don't Absolutely. have to be the same. Um, Absolutely. Did Mama did Mama die of natural causes? She died of a she died of a um, a car accident. She was struck by a um, she was struck by a, a, a careless driver, just a, just a, a distracted driver, um, uh, and that's what that's what Van knows about her death. Now, I will say that in uh, books soon to come, that is a story I may be exploring more because there are aspects of Van's life of which he is unaware, um, including his parentage, um, that uh, we're going to get into in, in coming books. And that's the, sort of the delight of writing a series is you can delve deeper into the background of your, of your main characters, certainly, but you can also assemble, as I like to do, a, a variety of colorful characters, a cast of characters, that you get to mix and match. Um, uh, in the second book, for example, one of the minor characters from the first book is brought more center stage. And we learn more about his life, his family, and, um, and the relationship that that character, Dono and Van, had as Van was growing up. And it gives us, gives us a chance to, to tell a richer story over time. I think it's one of the things that episodic television does very well um, if, it's, if it's doing it properly with its characters over many seasons. And it's something that you get to do in a book series as well. Why'd you make them Irish? I'm sorry, say again? Why did you make them Irish? Oh, I made them Irish partially because of my love for that country, uh, visiting it. Um, I also happen to have access to a friend who is fluent in both, uh, in the both Irish or Irish Gaelic uh, and English. She works as a speech therapist in Galway. And I loved the idea of Dono coming um, he would have come over to our country at about around the sign of the time of the Troubles in the early 70s, um, when, it, when it was at its height in Dublin um, and in Belfast, or sorry, not in Dublin, in, in uh, Belfast and in County Ulster, where he's from. And so um, the idea of him, uh, Dono, escaping that, coming over to, to our nation and going out to 
what in organized crime sense would have been the Wild West out here uh, on the West Coast, because at that time, the West Coast wasn't um, under the control of any particular organized crime family, especially in the in the Northwest. It was more of a it was more of a place where an independent like Dono could operate. And so I liked the idea of him having an immigrant's drive, an immigrant's uh, outlook on our nation, um, and giving some of that to Van. I also liked the idea of the two of them communicating in Gaelic um, when they needed to be secret when Van was a young boy. Um, and that is, in fact, the language that Dono uses to communicate with Van when he asked him to come home. Hopefully you give us translations. I do give translations, and I don't use a lot of it, certainly. Um, and, uh, and of course, I don't speak uh, Irish myself, uh, but our good friend Anya does, and she keeps me, uh, she keeps me on, the, on the right path on those few sentences that I do use. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Glenn Eric Hamilton, author of the new book coming out in July, July 25th, I think it is, his new book, Hard Cold Winter, part of a series about a family and crime and a whole lot more. All right. Family is very important to you, isn't it? Family is extremely important. I mean, I, I, I have a very close-knit, immediate family and a, a wider extended family, certainly, especially that I married into. And I've, in addition to that, I think my larger family when I was younger was the family of choice was the was the friends that i that I gathered around me and and because my immediate family was quite small and uh, we were widespread, most of the family was chosen and uh, and the two of them fortunately live in happy harmony with one another and it's important to the grandfather and grandson as well isn't it Oh, it's absolutely important, and it, more so perhaps because there is just the two of them as they're growing up. Um, the people that they've lost um, in their in their blood relations um, certainly hold a large sway over the two of them. But they both have their own chosen families. Uh, uh, Dono, the grandfather, is really more of, of a loner. Um, you know, he has a few confederates. He has a couple of close friends. Um, but certainly not the widespread group that, that Van comes to acquire. Um, and there is a running, uh, a running theme that, that's, or a running pattern that sort of happened within just the first three books, and that's the, the, the family that Van is building now that he's come home. He finds himself in close contact and soon a close friendship with an elderly neighbor um, who was, who was uh, you know, a neighborly acquaintance of Dono's, if not a close friend. Um, but he and this, this woman, Addie, um, hit it off because they're two of a kind. Addie is also sort of a, a no BS, um, a very blunt, um, but also very giving individual. And Van and Addie's friendship is something that grows and deepens throughout the series. Where's Van's daddy? Ah, well, that's a that's a mystery that we'll get into in later books. As a matter of fact, that's an idea I have for the next book in the series, whether that's the next book I write or whether that's to come uh, within the next year or so. But actually, Van's father um, has always been unknown to him, and that's uh, part of what we'll get into soon. But I'm sure Grandpa knows. Oh, Grandpa knows, yeah. Okay. Or, maybe more accurately, Grandpa thinks he knows. Woohoo. 
mystery <laughs> lurking right there. That's right. That's right. You got to you got to throw in some twists. Yeah. Where's the mystery though in every day above ground? In every day above ground, um, Van is in touch with a. Uh, a former associate of his grandfather, um, a former associate uh, gets uh, that had worked with Grand's grandfather some 20 years before, gets out of prison um, and comes to see Van. And the part of the um, uh, part of the the tension of the story is is what looks like an easy and unobstructed uh, means of profit. What is essentially a, a deserted fortune or in a forgotten fortune turns out to be not so forgotten after all and van who is at that time trying to rebuild uh aspects of his life because of events in the first couple of books um goes against what might be his first inclination and agrees to help this man crack a safe that has been uh, abandoned for some 20 or 30 years um, the safe is, as I mentioned, not so abandoned after all, or only appears such. Um, and the two of them are uh, quickly in a very bad situation, which Van has to then figure out uh, in order to extricate himself and uh, and some perhaps some new members of the, of his clan uh, out of the out of sticky situations. Now it's interesting to me. Grandpa clearly had one morality going. Van adopted another morality, but there's no clear line between the two. It sounds a little bit shaky. It is a bit shaky, and Van himself finds it a bit shaky. You know, he he's a person who um, went from a, a, a very skewed aspect as a, as a child of thinking law was, was something for other people, really, um, to an environment within the army and especially within within the Rangers, uh, the Special Operations Force, where uh, a rigid adherence to code and to the person next to you um, was expected and voluntarily asked for. Um, you know, so possibly one of the more rigid codes that we have in our in our army, and that's that was part of the appeal to me is that he. He went from one extreme to the other. And as I said, sort of the, the challenge for Van is living in those gray areas now between those and perhaps understanding that what he learned from his grandfather can be used for better purposes and what he used from the Army doesn't necessarily have to be so rigid to get what he sees as justice done. What, though, I think the two codes have in common is the value of loyalty. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's very insightful, and the um, certainly where his grandfather was concerned, and and his grandfather's associates were concerned, uh, trust was a big aspect of that, <laughs> or trust but verify might be as well. I'm not sure Dono, the the elder Shaw, truly trusted anyone, <laughs> except perhaps Van, um, but uh, there was certainly a a close adherence to. Um, doing what you said and making sure that, you know, if you went in on a job with somebody, you were going to uh, not let yourself be double-crossed, but you weren't going to double-cross them, right? You were going to build on that reputation and form those alliances over time. That worked for Dono. It certainly loyalty has worked for Van, and 
when it comes to his former uh, former brothers in the Rangers and his and his friends now, um, he finds that family and loyalty are are things just as critical to him as they were to his grandfather. Then, having been a ranger, does he have to use his killing skills now that he's out? Um, he has to use his skills, certainly. But one of the tensions, I think, in the first book is that because of, because of uh, what's happened to Dono, the assault on Dono and, and Dono being in critical condition, um, and Van returning to life and starting to poke his nose into what's happened, there's a lot of assumption that Van is simply going to pick up a gun and start shooting when he starts finding out what's going on along the way. Um, Van, although he would be certainly capable of doing so, is perhaps a little more um, uh, a little more intelligent and a little more thoughtful than than what people's assumptions of him. Uh, but certainly, when push comes to shove and people start shooting at him, those skills come in handy. Does poor Van get a love life? He does, in fact, get a love life. He uh, he um, in the first book he comes into contact with uh, a young woman that, of course, would have been in her early teens when Van left town and now 10 years later is in her 20s. Um, and the two of them establish a, a very careful relationship, I would say, because if there's one thing that his, his new acquaintance has, it's the desire to stay on the straight and narrow and a rejection of the life that um, that both Van and Luce, her name is, that both Van and Luce were raised in. And so she has her own setting on the moral compass, and it's just as uncompromising, I think, or even more so than Van's is. Now, one more thing about the book, and that is you have some titles that are pretty depressing. Hard Cold, <laughs> hard cold Winter, Past Grimes, and Now Every Day Above Ground. <laughs> Well, that's modern noir for you. You have to give a little indication of what's going on. I hope I hope readers don't define them too depressing, um, but they are challenges to be overcome. You know, every as as I think a lot of people know, the the full phrase is um, every day above ground is a good day, right? right. Um, that's used somewhat ironically in every day above ground because the criminal. Um, associate of Dono's that Van comes into contact with um, has, in fact, terminal cancer. Um, and so he is the one who challenges that notion. And it is something of a study of making every day count. Um, and so that is, that is Van's life now is he's no longer perhaps living on borrowed time as he thought of himself. While he was in the, while he was in special operations and while he was uh, while he was um, in active military, um, but his life is nonetheless very dangerous at times, and he's figuring out what he wants that life to be. In fact, if whether and he wants to live that life, and so I think of it as perhaps more hopeful. Um, <laughs> that hard cold winter, for example, is something to be to be withstood and grow strength from and overcome, rather than necessarily just something to be endured. Did Van serve in Afghanistan or Iraq? He, 
He would have yes, he would have started off serving in Iraq. He would have um, he would have uh, come through the Rangers uh, about uh, uh, ten or eleven years uh, prior to the to the events of the first and and then the later stories. Um, he would have gone through uh, Ranger. He would have had a year or so in the military. He would have had um, uh, the the training through RASP, the Ranger selection process, and then he would have served first in Iraq, um, where he was wounded. Um, fairly early in his Ranger career, and he would have served some deployments in Iraq, and then as the as uh, events heated up in Afghanistan and special operations started becoming more involved there, his last few deployments were in were in um, the mountains of Afghanistan. Had it be it had to be a devastating time of service for Van. Absolutely, absolutely. It's although. It, it's a, it's an interesting generation, of course, or now a couple of generations that we've had in our special operations community of the of the the friends that I've made and interviewed um, as part of my research for the books is that this this group of soldiers went into the military with us already at war, and we were still at war in those same in those same fronts in those same nations when they left. Um, so. Unlike, say, World War II, where someone might have entered, been in the military prior to starting, or have entered as a as a result of Pearl Harbor, and then served out their 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 time in the service uh, until the end of the war, they they're a generation who's always known war. We've been at war so long, in fact, that many of those people were adolescents when we started uh, these conflicts, and and they're still going. And so Van entered the military understanding that he was going to war, um, that he intended to do that. Um, and now that he's out, we're still there. And so it's a different aspect because he went in with the full understanding, or at least his, his 18-year-old understanding, I should say, of what, that li- what, what he wanted and what that life was going to be. When I was interviewing a friend of mine early on um, in researching the first book, and I had hit on Van going into the military, and I thought, well, special operations is probably what he'd be intrigued in. And I was talking to my friend, who's a former Green Beret, about the about the special operations community and the branches of it. And he, and I'm going to clean up the language a little bit here, he described the, the Rangers, the light infantry unit, as knocking down doors and blowing stuff up. Um, they, are, they are raiders. They go anywhere in the world in 18 hours. They establish, accomplish the mission kidnap who needs to be kidnapped or extract who needs to be extracted, acquire the intel, blow something up, and then they get out again. You know, that's, that's their, they don't stay boots on the ground in one particular place for any time. And I, and I heard that and I thought, that's, that's my guy at age 20. That's exactly what he would want to be doing. He would be a raider. He would be the modern equivalent of a, of a pirate right of going in, accomplishing a mission tactically and getting out. And he's been living and that gave me a nice hook for Van reestablishing his civilian life because he's been living tactically and almost moment to moment for so long that he has to he has to relearn long-term planning for his own life. He has to think about what do I want to be when I'm 30, 35, 40 because he's about 28 at the at the time of the first book, um, which is not something he's really given much thought to. But there's always, at least when you write in a war setting, post-traumatic stress disorder. Does Van suffer? 
Uh, he does. He does. He has. He has suffered in the past um, because it is something that that you know active. We we think of it as something that happens to soldiers after they after they're out of combat um, or after they're out of the military. But in fact, um, it, it's post-traumatic stress is is an immediate thing um, uh, for many. Um, it can come on later, certainly, um, but for many, it's something that actively affects them while they're in the military and after they leave as well. Um, and it's also something that is um, a dramatic effect on the lives of so many, um, ranging everywhere from anxiety concerns, uh, sleeplessness, all the way to suicide, which is, which is a, a, scary, uh, a scarily large percentage um, of people affected by PTSD uh, uh, eventually lead to suicide. And so... Although these are although these are adventure thrillers, and we don't delve too much into probably the the, the psychological trauma, um, it is an aspect of Van's life. It is something that he has struggled with in the past, that he has uh, overcome um, with the help of therapy, with the help of medication, and and largely with the help of people around him. But it is also something that resurfaces in his life because of the 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 stresses of his coming home and the adventures that he gets into because of investigating what happened to Dono and his later adventures. It's not something that magically goes away, and it's not necessarily something that's away forever. Um, uh, Van thought he had it conquered at the start of the first book, and the, as I said, the events and the stresses bring those symptoms back again, and it is something that he has to grapple with. Um, it's something I took very seriously. It's explored a bit more in the second book, Hard Cold Winter. Um, I got to do a lot of discussion with um, both veterans and therapists who work in and around PTSD, because although it's not a dominating aspect of the book, it is something where you want to get the details very right. And it continues to be just part of Van's life, is that he just needs to deal uh, with these moments when they come up, whether it's waking up in the middle of the night with a dream or whether it's an anxiety concern that happens to him, it's now part of who he is, and he has the tools to deal with those. And you're listening to Conversation 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Glenn Eric Hamilton. He's written a series of books about a character named Van Shaw, the newest one coming out July 25th, I believe, the newest one. Every day above ground. My name's Peter Solomon. Now I'm going to switch gears totally from the books. Uh, All right. Glenn. Why this character? Why, these, why this series? Why not a private detective or a cozy with a little <laughs> old lady detective? Uh, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, write a spinoff and, uh, and do a cozy with, uh, with his neighbor, elderly neighbor, Addie, and make her into the new Ms. Marple. Um, but... Why Van? Well, I've always been fascinated, really, by societies that live in the cracks of current society. And, and really where it started was wanting to write a story about a man who was raised as a criminal, who was raised, you know, with those, not just with those skills, really, although that, that is fun, too, to research and, and, uh, and, and write about, but really about somebody whose whole look when he, when he I, I described it in, in in one article that I wrote a while ago about, you know, when 
we bring our children into a store and uh, young children and they grab the stuffed hippo and they want to take the stuffed hippo away is we have to describe to them why it's necessary to pay for the stuffed hippo before we can have it and own it even though the child has, has acquired it in their minds and, and has great love for it immediately already whereas van would have been raised with dono about the notion the notion of well Maybe when we walk into this store, we're looking for its weak points to understand how to break in later and steal all the stuffed hippos, uh, for example, right? So the notion that Van would have been raised to see things with these eyes uh, was very interesting to me. I kind of backed into the military aspect of it because of the fact that I wanted Van to break from that life. I wanted him to go away completely, not just move to a different part of the country, but go away as completely as he could from that world um, and then return to it. Some of that came from my moving from Seattle, where I was born and raised and where the books are set, to California and then returning to Seattle um, for visits and noticing the dramatic changes that were happening to the city because the economic crash happened, the real estate crash happened. And while all this was happening and parts of the city were deeply affected by that, there were other parts of the city that were deeply affected by the other thing that was happening in Seattle at the time, and that was the boom of Amazon and the second tech boom and everything else going on, and these companies acquiring large amounts of real estate and building up, and a large housing boom that was a reverse boom that was happening because of that. So we had these massive economic factors and social factors happening to the city in a very short amount of time, and I was kind of fascinated by that. And I thought about what it would be like for a character to come back after 10 years to a city that he knew very well and rediscover it. Um, and so those, those two aspects combined in my life to make me really want to tell the story about this person returning, not just to re-engage with the criminal aspects of his youth that he thought he had put down forever, but in a city that he used to know really well and is now a different place. But does he also like to go back to Seattle to soak up the rain? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I miss Seattle immensely from time to time, and I get up there at, at minimum two, two or three times a year for both um, location scouting for the books to discover what's changed because, boy, things are still changing rapidly. Um, streets that I thought I knew really well have to be re-explored. Um, but also, of course, to see friends and family, which is the, the more important part. Um, at this point, you know, we, we've enjoyed our California adventure, but we are talking as a family about trying to get back to some place in the Northwest, whether it's Seattle or, or its environs, um, simply because it's, it's, uh, I do feel like the city is part of who I am. And I still feel very much like a Seattleite, even though I've been in Los Angeles now for about a dozen years. It's also a place to get a good cup of coffee. And get an excellent cup of coffee and a good microbrew. Let's not forget that. All right. Well, why, fi why fiction? Why not nonfiction? Well, um, fiction is more fun. You just get to make stuff up, and you get to go in different directions than what you might want to do. A journalist has to, has to really zero in on the particular story that they're telling at the time. Not that, not that fiction doesn't cut out extraneous stuff, but certainly with nonfiction, um, uh, I remember your, your, your talk with Julia Dahl a short while ago. 
where she talked about the fun of fiction is is that um, she can go off on those tangents and, and explore the interesting side characters, which as a journalist she might have to leave off. Well, the, the, truth is, the truth is there also for fiction and nonfiction as well, as though it, I think it would be fun to write some nonfiction about the, the boom of Seattle and what's happening there. It might be fun to write about uh, the criminal community, um, or, or at least what I can discover of it um, in Seattle. Um, but really, I, I have a love for colorful characters, the slightly heightened reality that we get in adventure thrillers, and I love to write a good action scene. You know, that's a that's a great delight. And so that's something I get to do with fiction and explore maybe uh, relevant themes that I might not if I were strictly laying down the facts. Now, as a fiction writer, do you get to play God and move your characters all around and make things happen to them? Or as some fiction writers have described it to me, the characters take off a, take off on a life of their own and they tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I I would never say that the characters take over, but there is time. There are times when I'm writing a scene, and I need to have something happen, and I'm having a side character generally, um, maybe one that I don't know as well as I know Van or one of my main characters. I'm trying to have a side character do something, and I'm realizing that it's just the wrong fit. And that's, that's usually a sign to me that I may be writing the wrong scene or, or writing the scene in the wrong way along the way. Um, I'm not uh, – I'm never, I would say, possessed by the spirit of the characters. But there is an aspect of if I'm trying to shoehorn something in and it just feels clunky, there's a good sign for that. I usually have to step back and reexamine it. We ever going to – well, how, how long do you think the series is going to go on? Oh, that's a good question. I'm having him age more or less in real time, um, but he's a young man. You know, he's only about, uh, he's, as a matter of fact, his, um, in the next book I write, I'm probably going to have his 30th birthday be part of the story. I'm having him age a little, I'm already I'm, I'm aging him a little slower than in real time. Um, but um, I could see the series continuing for a long time. I, I hope it does. As I said, the the joy of assembling a cast of characters and, and building a rich history is that you get to explore that further. You get to bring characters back that you've had before and and uh, talk to them again and see where they are in their lives now. And readers seem to really respond to that, too. They, get, they have favorite characters that they want to see return, um, and I get those questions frequently. And so I, as long as there's stories to tell and maybe more importantly themes to to delve into um which is what really jazzes me a lot uh that that will keep me coming back and i hope keep readers coming back as well donovan ever going to marry loose and maybe have a few babies <laughs> well we'll have to find out it's not an it's not an easy road for the two of them there's a there's certainly a lot of love and attraction between them but they are different people at this point in their lives they're still both young they're still in their 20s, so they've got some time. All right. Dino, and we're going into the nursing home or the, or the cemetery. Ah, well, that, that readers will have to discover for themselves. I don't want to give away too much about what happens in the books, um, but certainly the, um, uh, the aging process of this older generation of criminals is something that we'll get into. How do you choose a theme for a book, though? You talk about using themes and exploring themes. <laughs> Yeah, theme is something that I find comes out 
in the writing. I don't start out with saying I want the first book to be about forgiveness, for example, which I think it is. Um, that really comes out. I, I write the book. You know, I tell the I tell the story I want to tell, and then in in rewrites in the next couple of passes through the book, I start realizing, oh, this is what this is what this character is really talking about when they're having this conversation. You know, when they're having the not the nuts and bolts exposition sort of stuff of moving the mystery along, but the the conversations and the little side notes about uh, about what's going on um, and and how they're feeling about it, and then sort of I get a I get a, a through line that that emerges as I as I write um, and that tends to be the hook and then in rewrites I, I strengthen that I look I look for how that ties into various things so it's a you know not to not to make it too uh, too uh, uh, pie in the sky woo woo feeling but I do think there's a lot of work that happens when a writer is sitting down pounding through the book, just putting words on the page, getting through it, that they don't realize is happening. There's a, there's a subconscious thing going on that they may be writing about that they're not fully aware of unless they come back to it, read it fresh, and go, oh, okay, this is a, this is a darker scene than I thought it was, or this is, a, this is a kinder scene than I thought it was. And then, and then talking about that tone and where that tone comes from and thinking hard about it, that's where that's where theme emerges and that gives you a really i think that's where a strength of a lot of especially modern day mysteries uh, come from is most modern mysteries that i read today they aren't just the locked room story of how did it get done they're also talking about the 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 impact that the mystery has and the crime has on the individuals involved is it easy for you to write, or is it like some writers have described it, opening a vein and bleeding on the page? <laughs> well, it's it's. Uh, I'll put it this way: when I'm when I'm in the zone, when things are flowing, it's fairly easy to get that first draft down. Rewriting is a little tougher. Um, I'm actually on a panel at California Crime Writers Conference, which is coming up this next weekend, um, which is specifically about rewriting, and. Rewriting, rewriting can be tougher because you've got to, as the saying goes, you've got to kill your darlings. You've got to get rid of extraneous stuff that doesn't serve the story, however brilliant you might think it is. Um, but, you've, but you've got to really reshape it. And, and that, for me, is the harder work. However, it's also where the book really starts to take shape and just uh, you know, come, goes from this sort of, uh, sort of work-a-day story and amorphous blob into something that, that I really feel you know, deserves the, the word novel around it, uh, that, that makes it an actual, an actual book and an actual theme that runs through. That's, that's where the work comes for me um, and where the harder work is, but it's also where the delight is. And I'm talking with Glenn Eric Hamilton here on Conversation 94 WIP, and we're talking about his new novel in the process of writing, the new novel coming out July 25th, Every Day Above Ground, a Van Shawn novel. Pack it for vacation. I know I will. Now, do you tour? With the uh, I tour. Yeah, I tour a little bit. Um, when when the book comes out. Now, I mean the the days of big book tours for most authors, um, except those really at the at the at the what I would consider the, the the high end, the folks who are already bestsellers and whose names can pull in a huge audience. 
the days of those sorts of book tours are, are long, long past at this point. That said, my publisher is, is uh, kind enough, certainly, to um, send me out to Seattle, certainly where the books are based and where I'm from, and to points here in the Los Angeles area and to a couple of the major booksellers um, in the Southwest, where I get to visit um, and get to meet people directly, who I, who, uh, uh, those who I, who I don't meet at mystery conferences and, and things of that nature. Um, and get to get to meet the booksellers directly, which is always a delight. Um, I really enjoy touring and I really enjoy visiting booksellers and, and talking with folks and doing Q and A's that uh, to me is one of the most fun aspects of this job because it is such a solitary profession sitting down and, and pounding out pages. It's, it's, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of alone time and to get out and to talk with other writers, to talk with fans of the genre, you know that is a that is a huge delight. I I only really do that around book launch time, but during the rest of the year there are conferences like California Crime Writers, like BoucherCon, like Thriller Fest, like Left Coast Crime, that finances allowing, I get to get out to and and uh, socialize a little bit and get out of my cave. <laughs> so well, that's a, that's that's a lot of fun. Well, tell the good folks at Harper Collins, your publisher, the East Coast wants you. Oh, I would I would be delighted. Believe me, I I'm able to get out to Thriller Fest in New York most years. That's where I got my um, got started. Really, that's where I got my agent, and uh, and of course that's where that's where Harper Collins slash William Morrow is is located. Um, and so I get to get out there at, at about once a year. But uh, I would love to explore the East Coast more. Um, I love it every time I'm I'm able to get out to visit you guys. And uh, with a little luck, I'll be out there soon. Well, let me ask you a question then about your publisher, HarperCollins slash William Morrow. The publishing world seems to be contracting. More and more publishers are merging with other publishers, like your publisher, for example. Used to be two independents, and now they're one. Does that concern you at all, or is it a good thing? Well, it's a it, you know it, uh, I'm still something of a newbie to the publishing industry, so I don't have I don't have maybe the the benefit of history. Um, uh, to, to really seeing changes over a lot of time. Um, it, is, it is true that the larger publishers certainly have done a lot of um, amoeba-like merging you know, during the past uh, 10, 15 years, and I, I expect that will probably continue. At the same time, the digital revolution, not just for e-books, but for just the act of printing, you know, the ability to print, um, uh, physical copies of books has allowed a lot of smaller presses to survive and to launch in this area as well. And so while we're seeing at the larger end, I think, well, it seems to me at the larger end that we're, we're getting an emerging of these big, big entities, these big publishing entities, we're also seeing a lot of niche publications being able to get started and survive on a smaller budget. Um, and and really get into that sort of niche marketing, largely in the way that niche channels do in cable, right? They don't necessarily need to pull the largest audience in the world in order to find in order to find their people, in order to find what will sell for them. And so, you know, I, I think that's a 
in any any way books get into the hands of readers, I'm always happy with. You know, whether it's digital, whether it's Amazon, whether it's through the the booksellers and so forth. I always like to support and encourage friends to support my you know my independent booksellers that I know. Um, Seattle. I'll put in a plug for Seattle Mystery Bookshop, my hometown um, mystery uh, hub. Um, and I always encourage friends when they're buying to to go through those venues whenever they can. Um, that said, in the larger sense, people are still reading. You know, the, the the physical bookstore hasn't died. The smaller imprint hasn't died. And I, I think it finds a way to survive. Life life will out, right? Absolutely. And certainly there's the ebook. I know my wife and her nook. United, <laughs> united forever, but that's another discussion. Um, which is more important to you, a good review or a fat royalty check? <laughs> well... I'll say I'm early enough in my career that fat royalty checks haven't been a concern as of yet. Um, hopefully I'll get there someday. Um, you know, uh, I, I will say I can I can coast on a good review um, a long time, um, probably longer than the fat royalty check will last in the bank account. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to get uh, a lot of attention and, and good attention for for the books in the series, the the latest one just got a starred review for Publishers Weekly, and that came out two weeks ago, and I'm still flying on top of that. So uh, I, I'm at this point in my career, the good review means a lot, and I hope it never stops meaning a lot. And you walk into a bookstore, the mystery thriller section, and there's mm-hmm. and there's your face on the back of a book. What does that do? <laughs> well, it's a little startling. Um, it's it's a little it's. We, it's funny, the first time someone contacts you whom you've never met and says that they love your writing is, is, a, is a moment that you never forget, right? And it's a joy, I, like, much like the reviews, that I hope I never get used to. You know, there's, there's just an intrinsic delight in being able to, to tell a story and have someone enjoy it whom, who would not have known you otherwise, right? Who would not have known you through friends or family or even necessarily through the conferences. And so it's a little odd to think that there's a, it, it, you know, not that I have any level of fame at all, but just that there's this notion of a public persona out there that people know you through your writing whom you've never met and maybe know more about you than you think they know um, because of who they met. So it's it's very strange to walk in and delightful to walk into a bookstore and realize that something you created is there. Um, we call it um, when, when friends who are writers and I post on social media, we call it caught in the wild, right? Where you'll walk into a bookstore in, in a city you've never been in and you'll see your book there in a bookshelf. And so that's a, that's a, uh, a ma- sort of a magical aspect of it, but it's also a little startling to understand that there's a there's a version of you out there that you only have so much control over. But how much of you is in the books? I mean, are you Van Shaw? Uh, I am not Van. Van is, uh, you know, <laughs> I always think there's a little bit of wish fulfillment that comes in with any author, especially writing, you know, things like action thrillers where the the hero is always uh tougher, smarter, quicker than than the author uh, could could hope to be. But there you know so there's a there's a bit of that in it. Um so and, but Van has a different very different 
um, upbringing than I do, but nevertheless, I think he and I have very similar attitudes. The sardonic thoughts that Van has are generally mine. Um, and so personality-wise, although we're um, separated both by years and by experience, we've ended up in largely the same place. So I have great affection for Van, but I also write about things with Van, him being younger than I am, where uh, those are time, those are those are attitudes or times that I used to have in my life. And Van has lived a very closed existence for a lot of his life, especially, you know, certainly in the Army, which he was totally dedicated to for many years. And now he's reestablishing himself in the world around him. And he's got lessons, social and otherwise, that he has to learn that fortunately are, I think, at this point behind me in my life. And now for my final question. Any nibbles from Hollywood, big or small screen? Oh, (laughs) well... There is, you know, my my agent, um, uh, wonderful agent with uh, the Aaron Priest Agency, um, is does have contacts uh, here in Hollywood, um, a where, which is where, near where I live, uh, and there have been uh, nibbles here and there. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to one of the first authors we mentioned, Lee Child. Just before the, the Jack Reacher series was already a bestseller. But it wasn't the huge phenomenon that it is now when I, when I first moved to L.A. And Lee came, and I subsequently met Lee through Thriller Fest and through ITW, and he was kind enough to blurb my first book. But long before this, he came to California to talk to the studios. And while he was in California, he was talking with he, – he came to our local library, which is actually where I started sitting down and writing came to our local library and gave a speech. And he attracted, at that point in in his writing career, he attracted about 50, 60, 70 people, right? Nowadays, he would attract five or 600 easily um, if he was giving a speech locally. So so he had written about nine or 10 Reacher novels at that point. And he said, and and he was in town to talk to studios, and he was talking to us about that. And he said, the only real control that a writer has um, is who to, whom to sell it to, right? Because once the writer makes that decision and the movie production or TV production gets started, unless they're a really big name, like a J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, they don't have any aspect on production control. They have to trust that to the, to the machine that's making it. And they have to trust that, that, that those individuals understand what the book's about and understand, too, that the changes will have to be made and they'll have to have to roll with that. And so I don't I don't put a lot of mental weight on the notion of what might happen to the books long term. You know, if at some point we get to the point where the books have have a, a big enough following that we're getting serious, serious bites from Hollywood and that we find somebody who I think will do a good job with that and that my agent agrees would do a good job, that's roads that we'll cross to. But I also understand that my job is to write the books and write the best series of books that I can do. And it will always be that, right? It will never, it will never not be that. Uh, I won't worry too much about what other media might turn it into at some point. I'll cross those uh, cross those bridges or burn those bridges when we come to them. 
And I'd like to say thank you to Glenn Eric Hamilton. It's been fun. Thank you, Glenn. Your new book coming out July 25th, Every Day Above Ground, a Van Shaw novel, number three in the series. Pack it for vacation. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you so much, Peter. Great to talk to you. And it's been Conversation. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Nothing left to say, but see you soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.